Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. My name is Austin, one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here. I'm excited to uh, worship with you guys, to be singing, to study God's word, to exalt Jesus and make him famous and connect joyfully as a family. Um, uh, Mo jumped us back into Hebrews uh, in, uh, last week, and we'll be in Hebrews uh, until around Easter. And so uh, it's exciting for us as a church to, to uh, just walk through a book of the Bible to help you understand how do I read the Bible? Uh, what does this look like to be uh, guided and led by uh, God's Word and just to study it verse by verse? So we'll be in the end of Hebrews uh, chapter 7, so you guys can turn there. But as you're getting there, uh, how many of you guys have seen AT&T's new commercial? Just okay is not okay. Uh, a couple of you guys, I don't know. They're amazing. If not, here is a video. I think you're going to enjoy it. Have you ever worked with Dr. Francis? Oh, yeah. He's okay. Just okay? Guess who just got reinstated? Well, not officially. Nervous? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. I'll see you in there. Just okay is not okay especially when it comes to your network. AT&T is America's best wireless network, according to oh. America's biggest test. Now. So, uh, hilarious, right? Uh, and they have one uh, with a babysitter, and they have one with a brake mechanic, okay? And so the whole point of the commercial is that just okay is not okay, right? Uh, they're drawing out the awkward ridiculousness of something important in your life just being mediocre and just being okay. And so we definitely don't want the person watching our kids to just be okay. We don't want the person that's changing the brakes on our vehicle to just be okay. And we definitely don't want the person that's operating on our body to just be okay and maybe reinstated, right? We want the best or at least really good or at least lie to us and tell us you're, you're, you're good, you know, but definitely not okay. And the entire book of Hebrews can be summed up in three words. Uh, Jesus is better, right? Like that's the whole point of the book. And one of the reasons we struggle with this is because we just don't think it's true. Like, I think there's, there's a temptation is for, not, for us to not believe that that is true. And so we think, man, a pay raise sounds a lot better than Jesus. A bigger home sounds better than Jesus. Finally getting married sounds better than Jesus. Having a firm, secure retirement account sounds better than Jesus. Uh, having our ki- watching our kids go to college, that sounds better. I mean, you just, you just kind of name it. Just so many things out there will allure our hearts into believing that those things, things of the world, are better than Jesus. And friends... To let you know, they are not, but we will be tempted to believe that other things are better than Jesus, okay? The other reason, though, that we struggle to believe that Jesus is better, I would argue, is that we don't care if it's true. So not only do we, do we not think it's true, we also don't care if it's true. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of us have just kind of settled for the way things are. And, and we don't even care to explore that Jesus might indeed be better. And so you might be looking at your life and saying, honestly, it's not bad right now. Like I pay my bills, I've got a pretty healthy family, and everything's kind of going okay, I like my job. And so there's this kind of aspect to like, I know that you, the offer there is that Jesus is better, but I'm not even, I'm not even sure I want to explore that that could be a reality, because I'm just okay with just being okay, right? This is what the author of, of Hebrews in chapter 7 is trying to do through our verses. He's pleading with Jews that gave their life to Jesus to not settle for just okay, to not settle for mediocrity. And so he's speaking to these Jews that gave their life to Jesus, and he's saying, hey, I want you to believe Jesus is better. 
And he's specifically talking about high priests, right? And so these Jews are wondering, whoa, 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 whoa. The, the, the priesthood has worked great for years. Like, we like it. it it's okay the way it is. And, and so why are you saying that you need to be the new priest? And why are you saying that there needs to be a new priesthood? And, and these guys, and, and, I mean, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know what I mean? Like, that's the old saying. Like, why are you trying to fix what is okay? And, and he's pleading, man, there's something better. And so, friends, church, um, this is the same argument uh, that AT&T is making. Just okay is not okay. Good enough is actually not good enough. And so, church, if you've settled for just okay, good enough, mediocrity, or the status quo, I'm going to encourage you this morning, our verse, our Bible's going to encourage you this morning, that Jesus has something so much better for you guys, for all of us. Amen? So that's where we're going. And we're going to look at two ways our verses specifically show us that this to be true. So let's jump in. We'll read verses 23 and 24. 23 and 24. Uh, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking about Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Okay? So the first way uh, that Jesus is better is that Jesus is our permanent priest. Jesus is our permanent high priest. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, God gave his people priests. And these priests kind of served as a mediator between God and his people. So they were kind of like the, the middleman, right? They would perform sacrifices for the sins of the people. They would, talk, they would go to God on behalf of the people. And not just anyone could be a priest either. You had to be from the tribe of Levi, so the specific tribe of Levi. And then within that tribe, you had to be from Aaron's family, from his lineage, okay? So it's not like you see somebody in Bible study and think, man, that guy's really sharp. I'm going to tell you what. Here's the job description of a priest. Uh, here's the vacation days. Uh, does come with health benefits, and we will help with the 401k. And so if you want it, job's yours. No, it's like it's, God made it very selective and specific to say, no, you need to be from uh, the tribe of Levi in the family of Aaron in order to serve God's people in this specific capacity as a priest, right? And verse 23 says that the former priests, all these priests within the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. And so at this point of writing this, this verse, this passage, this book, um, uh, there had been thousands of priests that have served through the years, but they couldn't continue serving because they died, right? Um, which makes sense to all of us. Now, Transition of leadership, sometimes it's really exciting, right? I think I can collectively speak for all of us in the room that we were excited to say a gracious goodbye to Mike Riley and a warm welcome to Scott Frost, right? Like, we love Mike Riley. He's a great, good character man. Just wasn't performing the way he thought we, we thought he should. And so we just so happened to get homegrown, uh, Nebraska famous, uh, coach of the year Scott Frost, right? And we were all ecstatic. That transition of leadership was exciting. But what about in 1998 when the beloved Tom Osborne hands off the reins to Frank Solich? You guys remember that? Uh, um, and, and, and so you get 1994, 1995. We're not going to talk about 96, but 97. All those, those three years, the Nebraska Cornhuskers won the national championship title. Those three years within the span of four years, right? Tom Osborne's arguably one of the best coaches that has lived or played in college football. And then so at the end of it, he says, hey, I'm going to transition out. And so he hands the, co- the team, this national championship team, to Frank Solich to take over. 1998. Uh, Frank Solich leads the team to a 9-4 and four season. Now, Nebraska 2019, we're like, 
give me nine and four. You know, 1998, we're like, mm-mm, you're fine. You know, like, this was not okay. And so, so I'm just sure, I mean, uh, th- there was a hard transition for the state of Nebraska, right, to go from this amazing leader uh, and, and Tom Osborne and just beloved to transition. We were all scared. What's going to happen? What's he going to lead the team like and what are they going to produce? Um, and, and so it's just what happens. See, our hearts long for consistency. We love consistency, especially in a good leader that we trust. Okay, uh, a church here in town, Lincoln Brian, amazing church, loves the Bible, preaches the Bible faithfully, uh, has led a ton of people to mature in Christ, has pursued love. They pray for our church publicly in their gathering once a month. Amazing, right? Brian is an amazing church. Brian Clark is a great leader that's led for 20 or 30 years and preached faithfully the gospel and led people into it. Um, Brian Clark is transitioning out of being the lead pastor of Brian, and I'm sure the whole church collectively is mourning the reality that they're going to lose their beloved lead pastor over 20 or 30 years. Right, it's a hard transition. So we, as a church, can pray for them. The transition goes smooth. No church is built on any one man aside from Jesus. So Brian Lee, the church can still go healthily. So we can pray for that. Right, they get a new leader to lead them well. Nonetheless, this is what's happening every time a priest would die and a new one would come. Right, they're like, they're like, man, we love that one. Like we kind of had a thing going, and we just kind of knew me well. Like the guy that the guy that went to God on your behalf. The guy that prayed for you, that performed sacrifices for your sin, the man that knew you and led you eventually died and a new one comes. And you're wondering, am I going to like him? Like, are we going to relate well? Is he going to know? Like, what's it going to be like? It's hard. Like, the transition of a good leader is a really difficult thing to happen. There's a toll that takes place, right? When we say goodbye to a good leader and, and say hello to a new one. And, um, and, but oh, the best leaders will transition out. Like, they will die. Like, the, your favorite people will fade away. That's bad news. But verse 24 gives us good news. Verse 24, it says, But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And so the author reminds us, hey, I know those priests all died because they couldn't be high priests forever because they were prevented by death. But Jesus is permanent. He lives forever. He is your high priest forever. So here's what that means, City Light. Um, you don't, we don't have to experience the pain of a transition of another leader ever again within Jesus as our priest. You don't need to uh, caution and guard your heart from connecting too much to him because you're afraid you're going to lose him, right? Like, like that, that doesn't need to, to happen. Jesus is, is there. We don't need a succession plan for him. There were many priests, but now we have one who lives forever, Jesus. And so this world, we know it, is fading, and it's inconsistent, and it's changing. But we have a rock in Jesus that we get to stand on for all of eternity, one high priest forever, and so unlike the other high priests, priests, Jesus, uh, death didn't prevent Jesus from being our high priest forever. It actually propelled him into it. And so Revelation 1, 18, Jesus says, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the, uh, the keys to death in Hades, right? So like the high priest, uh, Jesus did die. But unlike them, he rose again and defeated death and sin and Satan forevermore. Amen. That's really, really good news. And so now he's our high priest forever. And you might be wondering, awesome, Austin, thanks for telling us that people die. I think we knew that. You know what I mean? Like we've seen the obituary section in the newspaper, whatever it is, right? Like we, we, we've seen that before. And thanks for telling us that Jesus is our high priest forever. We know he died. We know he resurrected. Why does that matter? It matters because verse 25 tells us, consequently... In light of Jesus being our permanent high priest, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, right? Verse 25 tells us why it matters that Jesus is our permanent high priest. And so the verse shows us that Jesus being our high priest permanently means two things. The first, the first thing it means is that Jesus died and resurrected to save to the uttermost. Jesus died and resurrected to save to the uttermost. So some people have interpreted this verse to mean that, um, that Jesus can save anyone, right? No one's too far off to Jesus, for Jesus to save. No sin is too deep for Jesus to, to, to forgive. No one is too far gone to Jesus to go at, for Jesus to go after and rescue, which is 100% true, right? Jesus can absolutely save anyone, but that's not what this verse is specifically meaning. Uttermost means completely, right? Those two words are synonymous, right? It doesn't mean everybody or anybody. It means completely. And so for Jesus to save to the uttermost, it means that his salvation for us is both fulfilled and forever. And so I'll explain. Meaning uh, our salvation, knowing that it's fulfilled, means that Jesus did all the work, right? Every last drop of it. And so there's kind of this like, this thought within uh, that religion might promote that's like Jesus did 50% of the work or God did 50% and you're responsible for the other 50%, right? And even among Christian circles, evangelical circles, we might kind of like uh, under the radar believe that Jesus did 98% of the work and we just have to do 2%. But I want to be very clear, if you believe that, that is heresy, That is not the gospel. That's not true. You didn't do a slice of a percent. Jesus did 100% of the work, fulfilled perfectly, and we simply believe he did 100% of the work for us. Amen? That is the good news of the gospel. It's not on you. You couldn't bear that weight. Even if we were responsible for half of a sliver of 1% of our salvation, we would not have it or have any hope, or any confidence. Jesus did all the work for us. He did what we could never do, right? In verse 25, it says, we draw near to God, how? Through him, okay? So you don't come to God on your accomplishments or your good works. We come to God through Jesus's accomplishments and good works on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus did what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died, right? There's an old hymn that says, I have no other argument, and I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me right? That's our plea. We don't have any other argument other than Jesus died. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, uh, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus was spotless. God placed our sin on him. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Jesus became our substitute permanently. So our salvation being to the uttermost means that it's fulfilled. Jesus did 100% of the work, but it's also forever, okay? So it just, it, uh, uh, meaning that Jesus lives forever, so his work for us stands forever. Now imagine you're in high school, um, and, uh, and you're in your freshman year, and there's a, so- there's a sophomore that's bullying you, okay? And then you're just like, uh, man, I, um, you're wondering what, what's going to happen? How, how's this going to be? Um, uh, maybe Seth Brown can come and protect me. I don't know. Like, you're trying to call him out, and Seth just is gone. Anyways, uh, you're in your freshman year, sophomore bully. A senior says, hey, that's not going to happen, okay? I'm not going to let that happen. And so uh, he's like, I'm going to protect you. And so for your whole freshman year, you're like, sweet, I'm protected, I'm guarded, no one's going to hurt me, right? What happens when that senior graduates? That sophomore that's now a junior, it's a little bit bigger, a little bit bulkier, spent more time in the weight room, has been prevented from bullying you for a whole entire year. He's going to come down on you hard, right? 
This is, what it, this is the opposite of what happens for, this is like why Jesus living forever means so much, because his salvation is forever, right? Like he lives forever. He doesn't, he doesn't season out and the senior goes off and graduates and goes somewhere else. No, Jesus is with us, protecting us. His promise stands forever, right? He died, but he lives forever holding that. And so um, there is no subscription you need to renew, uh, there is no expiration date to Jesus' salvation. You need to come back and see, man, are we still good? John 10, 28, Jesus says, um, uh, I will give them eternal life uh, and they will never perish. It's fulfilled um, and no one will snatch them from my hand. It is forever. And so Jesus saving to the uttermost means that he did all the work for us and he's sustaining that forevermore. We can never lose it. It can never be taken away. He is holding on to us, right? He can save to the uttermost. The second thing, is that Jesus being our permanent priest uh, means that he eternally lives to intercede for us. Jesus eternally lives to intercede for us. So verse 25, the end of it, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Now this transitions from what Jesus did for us on the cross, which is our salvation, to what Jesus is doing for us now in heaven, which is intercession. Okay, so track with me. Before I jump into what interceding means, I just want to stop, pause, and, 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 and kind of see like one of the most mind-boggling things we'll ever come across. Um, God in heaven saw us in our sin, okay, in our brokenness, in our depravity, fully deserving of wrath, fully deserving hell, and thought, I love them so much that I'm going to send my son. And so he sends his son, Jesus, born as a baby, lives a perfect life, right? And after Jesus uh, performed miracles, played with children, cried with Mary and Martha, healed blind eyes, raised dead people uh, from the grave, he ate with prostitutes, he preached to the masses without ever harming anyone, we pinned him to the cross and killed him, Okay. And three days later, Jesus raises from the grave, uh, defeating death, sin, and Satan forevermore, right? And, and so, in light of what Jesus has done, all we need to do to come to God is trust in Jesus, turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, right? Like, that's crazy. Like, if we just stop there, that's the most ridiculous, mind-blowing thing we, we could ever come across. And even as I communicate that, I'm just praying, God, would that news, the gospel, never be dull to anyone's ears? Like, would that news just blow us away, right? Would we never, that never become mundane or assumed or ordinary? Would that gospel news that God saw us on our sin and sent his son to die for us and do for, for us what we can never do, would that always just sit us back in our seat and be amazed? Like, but, but verse 25 says, it actually doesn't stop there though. Like the good news of the gospel doesn't stop at the resurrection and just faith, right? Um, not only did Jesus enter earth to die for sinful, ungrateful messes like you and I, but he says right now he lives in heaven to intercede for you and I. Like, like so, so of all the ways that Jesus could spend his eternity, his uh, eternal reign on the throne in heaven, he chooses to spend that time focusing on you, helping you, loving you, fighting for you, Caring for you. I mean, our view of heaven is so warped and so selfish. We think, man, I'm going to sip on my favorite drink and I'm going to eat my favorite food and, and, and I'm just going to relax and rest and whatever that may be, whatever you think. And yet Jesus' view of heaven is spending, uh, is spending it fighting for criminal sinners like you and I. That's crazy to me that of all the ways Jesus could spend heaven, he would choose to fight and help you, to fight for and help you. I've never heard of love like that. Now, 
So what does interceding actually mean? We know that Jesus is doing it. He lives in heaven to do that for us right now. What does it mean? Intercede means to intervene or mediate on someone else's behalf. So you kind of have this thought, wait, does that mean that like every time we sin, Jesus runs in front of the Father and says, Dad, Dad, don't kill him. Like they didn't mean it. You know, like it's okay. Like don't, like a big brother fighting for the younger sibling. Like no, that'd be a bad view of God and, and, and the Son, of the Father and the Son, and the Spirit, right? They're, they're, in, they're in agreement on it, right? So it's not this kind of thing where Jesus is trying to, you know, like anxiously um, uh, convince God to not punish us because of our sin, right? That's not what it means. So what does it mean? Uh, Romans eight thirty four is the verse for it. Romans eight thirty four gives us a clear picture. Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, right? Um, This is huge. And so let me just be clear. Jesus' eternal intercession for us is not frantic persuasion. It's his faithful presence on the throne of God, communicating his permanent payment to bring sinners to God. Okay, that's what intercession is, right? Um, So I'm going to say that one more time. Jesus' intercession for us, that he is doing by his grace for us right now, is not frantic persuasion, Anxious convincing to, the God, to God to try to make sure he doesn't punish us. It's not frantic persuasion. It's his faithful presence seated on the throne of God, communicating confidently that he indeed has brought permanently sinners to God by his payment, right? That's what intercession is. And so we consistently sin. We know that. We're aware of that. And yet Jesus consistently intercedes for us, confident in his saving work. And so here's what that means, friends. Uh, no one can condemn you, okay? No one can pull you away from God, not even yourself. And, uh, and no one can nullify what Jesus has done for you. He is holding on to you and interceding for you in heaven forevermore. This is amazing. And so our permanent priest, Jesus, died to save us completely and now lives forever to intercede for us constantly, right? That's the, the good news of the expanse of the gospel. And it gets even better, right? Let's look at verses 26 and 27 to continue down. Uh, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He, Jesus, has no need, like those high priests, to offer, sins, or offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he... Uh, did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so the second reason that Jesus is better is because Jesus is our perfect high priest. So not only is he our permanent high priest, he's also our perfect high priest. Now remember, the author wants to tell us okay is not okay, right? Good enough is not good enough. The status quo does fall short every time. And so not only were the former priests temporary, but they also were flawed, right? They weren't just temporary, they were also flawed. And so verse 26, the author starts says, hey, let me just give you Jesus's perfect resume just to compare and contrast it from the old high priest. And so he says, first, Jesus is holy, right? Meaning that he met every requirement of the law in order to be our perfect substitute. He is holy and set apart. Uh, He is God, right? Two, he's innocent, And so Jesus remained without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says he remained without sin. He was tempted and yet didn't give in to sin. Three, Jesus is unstained. 
And so uh, he wasn't, um, rather than being stained by sin, Jesus actually cleanses sin. So there's this story of Jesus touching a leper, putting his hands on a leper, and the leper gets healed. And it's a crazy story because a priest actually was, uh, they could not touch a, a, a leper because they would become unclean themselves. So the whole rule, if someone's unclean and you touch them, you become unclean. It's like someone has the flu. You're like, don't touch them, right? You're going to get the flu, right? This is the similar thing. And rather than... Uh, the clean touching the unclean and being coming unclean, Jesus the clean touches the unclean and makes them clean, okay? Jesus is unstained, right? It's amazing. Fourth thing, he's separated from sinners. Now, make no mistake, Jesus loved hanging out with sinners. That's all he did on earth, right? They called him a friend of sinners in a derogatory way, and Jesus, I think it was his favorite title, right? He's like, absolutely, I'm a friend of sinners. Um, But he was also distinct from them, because he was perfect, right? So Jesus spent time, like he can empathize with us in his love, but he's also distinct from us in his holiness, right? He's separated from sinners because of his perfection. And five, he's exalted above the heavens. So Philippians 2 says that after Jesus was born and was made a servant and died a humble death on the cross, God highly exalted him to give him the name above every other name that every tongue should confess that he is Lord and every knee bow to him in his glory, right? Jesus is exalted above heavens. Now, this is not the resume of anyone in the room or any high priest that ever lived, right? They may be good, you may be awesome, but you do not get that resume. It only belongs to Jesus. And because of that, because of his perfection, the author compares two differences between Jesus and the former high priest. Okay, so we'll look at two differences. The first, Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin because he didn't have any. Okay, the first difference between the high priest, former ones, and Jesus is he didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins because he didn't have any. Now, the priests were good men, but they weren't perfect, right? They were guilty of sin. And so when they would come to sacrifice and go to the temple, they would have to sacrifice for their own sins before they could sacrifice for your sins. Now, I can relate really well to this dilemma. If I can just take a moment and tell you all that your pastors are, not, are far from perfect, okay? Especially me. I was supposed to wear my City Light Lincoln shirt for my girl Amara, and I forgot it this morning, so I clearly am not perfect. There's this one instance, right? Um, it'd be awesome. I was like, bang, you know, I had my City Light shirt, but I don't. Uh, anyways, um, uh, but, but Mo, Ricky, and Brett, and I, like we, or Nate and I, like just uh, um, broken men. Right? Someone had said, uh, we're all just one beggar pointing another where to find bread. Right? Like this is kind of the call. And so I've just realized there's people that call me and say, Austin, I need, to help. I need help processing through what I'm going through. And I'm thinking on the other line of the call, I, I need help processing what I'm going through, right? The thing, Austin, I need prayer, man. I'm thinking, I, I need to be prayed for too, right? There's a, there's a gap in my leadership. There's a dilemma in that, right? Um, and so, so you need to be pointed to the gospel and to truth. And I'm thinking, but I'm also forgetting the gospel and the truth, right? Like I'm capable of that. And so here, here's why this matters. Here's why I want to draw this out. Um, because as a leader, I am distracted by my own need. I'm distracted by my own sin. And it's the same thing for the, uh, for the Old Testament high priests, right? They were distracted by their need. Before they could help you, they needed to help themselves. Before they could care for you, they needed to care for themselves. Before they could sacrifice for your sins, they needed to sacrifice for their own sins. Before they could pray for you, they needed to pray for themselves. But here's where Jesus is so much better, friends. He's not distracted by his own need. He's not distracted by his own sin because he doesn't have any. 
He's spotless. He's, he's perfect. He's sufficient. He's not busy taking care of himself or, or getting himself healthy. Jesus is 100% undistracted and fully committed to helping you, walking with you, caring for you, and walking you towards health. This is amazing. Without any distraction. Uh, if you've flown on a plane before, one of the first things they do uh, is you're going to take off. The flight attendant comes up and goes through all the different things, and most of us check out and put our headphones in. But if you listen, uh, they tell, they have this little like uh, mask thing. That they say, hey, if there's a, a depravity of oxygen, if there isn't any, uh, a mask will come down. And they say, what's the first thing they say you need to do? Put it on yourself first, Right? Because you need to take care of yourself before you attend to your children or the person next to you. Make sure you put the mask on yourself first, right? Um, And so this is how I operate. This is how I have to operate. And this is how the high priest operated before Jesus. Before they could give you oxygen, they needed oxygen for themselves. Before they could give you the mask, they needed to put the mask on themselves. But here's the good news, friends. Jesus breaks those rules right? Because he doesn't need the mask, right? He doesn't have any need of his own to care for him. No, no, like Jesus is undistracted. And so friends, when the proverbial plane of your life has turbulence and is going down, Jesus confidently and calmly and, uh, uh, puts the masks on you first. He's undistracted, right? He's, he's perfectly focused in on helping you without any distraction of anything else, right? So the first thing, Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin because he doesn't have any, right? He is undistracted. Second reason, second contrast, is Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifices daily because he offered himself once. Huge. Jesus did not have to offer sacrifices daily because he offered himself once. Now, Verse 27 says he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So all the former priests had to offer sacrifices every, every day, right? Uh, because sin never ceased, their job never ceased. So it's the ultimate job security. So if you're a dentist and the United States declares we're going to have Halloween every week, you're like, yes, I'm going to be rich, right? Like it's just like, it, like there's an there's a ultimate job security in that. Because there is sin, there will always need to be sacrifices to the priest who are forever employed. Um, and the same people would come back with the same sin time and time again, right, to have an animal killed uh, to sacrifice for their sins. And the priest would do this faithfully after sacrificing for his own sins, right? We just learned that. But I want you to picture this. Uh, we'll, we'll just say that we're pre-Jesus as a Jew, right? We're all Jews. We're pre-Jesus. Um, you're going through your day. It's a normal day. And uh, you find yourself in sin, And so you're angry at the person in front of you uh, for cutting you off or going too slow, whatever it is. Uh, You are paying more attention to your phone than your kids. Uh, You yell at your spouse. Um, You look at something that you shouldn't have looked at. You think of something you shouldn't have thought. You lie at work to make yourself sound a little better and cover up, you know. Whatever it may be, you have sinned. And so the next thing you would do is you would travel home and you would walk to your backyard and you'd find a lamb or a turtle dove, or whatever animal would correlate that needs to be sacrificed for your sins, that would correlate with it. And you would grab it, and let's just say it's the lamb, and you pick the lamb up, and you would walk to the temple after that, after you sinned, right? And so you finally get to the temple, but just to imagine, as you're carrying this lamb through your neighborhood, everyone sees you and notices, oh, they're dirty. Oh, oh, they sinned. You're carrying it, ashamed. And you get to the temple, finally, and the priest, he has to actually offer sins offer sacrifice for his own sins first. And so he's a little busy. So you wait. And then you realize, oh, there was actually a line of other people that need to sacrifice for their own sins first. And so you get in the back of the line and you're waiting patiently and you've got this lamb in your hands, in your arms. 
And every time you look down at it, every time it moves around, you're reminded that you did that thing that you promised you never would, right? And you're kind of under this cloud of guilt and shame. Is God going to accept this sacrifice? Is God pleased in me? Does God love me? Does he care for me, right? And so you finally wait in line, and, and it's finished. Everyone's done. As you, get to, you, give, you give the lamb to the priest, and you confess your sin, and he prays for you, and he, he, he um, sacrifices the lamb, and you're good to go, right? Only to repeat the same thing the next time you sin. It could be the next day, week, month, whatever. Nonetheless, you will spend the rest of your life that, doing that same exact thing, walking to the temple in shame, waiting to be sacrificed for, sitting under your guilt of remembering the thing you did that you promised you never would do, right? Time and time again for the rest of your life. But imagine if the story changed. Imagine getting to the temple with your little lamb under your guilt and shame, and you, you go to give it to the man that's standing there, to the priest, and he says, he refuses to take it. And he says, actually, um, I'm not, I'm not going to take this. I'm, I'd like to give, um, I'd like to give myself for you. Uh, I'm actually not going to sacrifice the lamb. I'm going to sacrifice myself. And you're confused, thinking, what do you mean? That's not how it works. No, actually, rather than spilling its blood, I'm going to spill my blood for you. And and just so you know, um, here's the the really good news. I just want, you'll never have to come back to the temple with a sacrifice again. You'll never have to wait a moment in line wondering if you're loved. My sacrifice is going to be so much better than this little lamb or the turtle dove or whatever it is. Uh, it's actually going to pay for all of your past sin and all of your current sin and all of your future sin once for all, right? I'm going to do this for you. And so here's the good news. The, the priest tells you that refuses to take your lamb. You never have to come back to this place wondering if you're loved. You never have to spend a millisecond of time wondering if God cares about you, if he sees you, if he knows you, if he loves you, if he approves of you because of my sacrifice, right? Just so you know, I mean, how crazy would that be? And I want to tell you, friends, this is exactly what Jesus did. This is exactly what Jesus did. Verse 27, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus doesn't have to sacrifice every day because he sacrificed himself once for all. All of your sin, all at once, forevermore, Jesus did that. That's how expansive his gospel is. When he's hanging on the cross in John 19, 31, Jesus cries out, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. There's no work left for you to do, not even a sliver. It is paid in full. All the wrath of God that was deserved to you for your sin, Jesus drank on the cross joyfully, Hebrews says, so that he could have you in relationship with him for all of eternity, giving glory and praise and honor to him because he deserves it. He didn't spill the blood of the animal that you brought. He spilled his own blood that you could never bring, right? This is how good he is. And verse 28 says, the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. And so the law appointed weak men that couldn't get the job done. But then God appoints a son that could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. This is how Jesus is better. They were distracted by their own weakness, but God appoints his perfect son to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. By the way, this was the plan all along. This wasn't plan B. This wasn't God, you know, just trying to spontaneously put something together. This has been the plan all along. In Colossians 2, verse 17, it says, These are a shadow of the things to come. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. And so, friends, the priests were never meant to be the substance. They were a shadow of the thing that Jesus would do better. 
The sacrificial system was never supposed to be the end game. It was supposed to point to how Jesus would sacrifice forever for us. And so the author of Hebrews is pleading with you, and I am begging you, don't settle for the shadow. Take hold of the substance. Enjoy the real thing. Don't be um, uh, encaptured by the shadow. Enjoy the substance, the real thing, the fulfillment, Jesus. Now, the application for these Jesus-believing Jews was to let go of the former priesthood that they enjoyed and to take hold of the better priest, Jesus, right? To let go of what was good and take hold of what is best. And I'm asking you to do the same thing this morning, to let go of what's good, to take hold of what's best, to, to, to dare to explore that Jesus may just be better than your current circumstances, right? Um, I want to call you into that to stop tinkering with fading, unfulfilling toys and take hold of the fulfilling, infinite Jesus, right? And so don't settle for just, okay, enjoy Jesus. And as I thought and prayed for you guys this morning, some of you have lost hope. Some of you have lost hope and accepted your reality. It's just going to be the way it is. Some of you have settled and just become complacent, thinking that God is always going to feel distant. Some of you have assumed that it's just going to be like this for the rest of your life. Some of you have given into the idea that God is never really happy with you, right? Um, but I'm pleading for you to let go of just okay, to throw away good enough, to toss out complacency to, uh, and mediocrity and lies you've been fed, to take hold of Jesus, be ignited with hope, and have him secure as your permanent and your perfect high priest. And so I want to remind you of the truth in this passage. It says that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, he is always there for you. He will never leave you. He will never not be there for you right? He doesn't change. He doesn't shift. He's not going to be taken away from you. He won't have to succeed to another person leadership. He is forever with you. And he didn't temporarily save you, right? He saved you forever. You don't have to renew the subscription. He's interceding for you right now in heaven, fighting for you, although you sin consistently. He's not distracted. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He cares for you. He notices you, and he's drawing you to himself. And he loves you so much, friends, that he sacrificed himself once and for all so that you would know without a shadow of a doubt forever that you are infinitely and unconditionally loved by God because of him. Amen? Jesus is such a better priest. So let's take hold of him. Now, this morning we get to take communion. And it's such a perfect way to remember uh, what Jesus has done for us and his permanence and his perfection. And in Luke 22, uh, uh, in Luke 22, Jesus is having the Last Supper with his disciples. And as he's going through, he says uh, in verse 19, it says, he took the bread, uh, I think it might have been from Hy-Vee, and he said, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, so he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he grabbed the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, Right? It's this beautiful thing. Jesus is saying, hey, this, this, this bread, uh, nothing innately special about it, but it's going to represent and remind you what I've done. It says that he's like, I've given this for you. I've given my body over for you to be broken. And you dip it in the juice and you remember, man, Jesus also gave his blood to be shed for you. And the fact is, if this didn't happen, uh, if Jesus didn't break his body for us and shed his blood for us, there would be no salvation. 
there would be no forgiveness of sins. There would be no hope. There would be no confidence. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus, I'd love to invite you to take communion with us. We'll break the bread for you and you can dip it in the juice. Uh, if you're not a believer, I'd love for you to, to accept Jesus, to give your life to him, to let go of just okay and cling to what's so much infinitely better. Um, but if you don't trust in Jesus, if you're still exploring that, ask you just to stay and not take communion. Uh, um, and so I love you guys. I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll continue to take communion and sing.